Good to see everyone this morning. So glad that you're here. Uh, excited to be with you guys. My name is Shane Hamm. I'm one of the pastors here at North Point Church. Uh, if you're with us online, welcome, welcome, welcome. Say hello to somebody. Write it in all caps. Just yell at them. Hey, everybody. Uh, but uh, in fact, just turn to somebody around you if you're here in this room and just wave at them and say, hey, you, what's up? There you go. Give them the nod. Give them the nod. There you go. Oh, I'm just so happy to be here with you guys. Well, hey, we, have, we are in the final week of a series that we have called Signs. And if you just grab your notes, uh, just like this, just pull those out, we're asking the question, how do you know when the gospel has got a grip on your money? And we're going to jump right in today. In fact, I'd encourage you to grab your pins and uh, grab these because I have been told in recent weeks, but Pastor, you move too fast. I can't get in all the, I can't write down all the points. And so I'd like to confess to you, yes, I'm a sinner. And yes, I have a problem of going too fast. I'm sorry. Uh, but uh, tell you what, I'm going to slow down just a little bit for us today. But I am going to, I'll probably pick up and start moving because you know me. So make sure that you've got your pins and you're ready to go. Last week... We mentioned one of the most intriguing verses in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Let's just look at it here. It says, if you are a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for hard work and give generously to those in need. Now, that is putting it in the most startling way because what this is saying, if you remember, we talked about this. It says a thief hasn't stopped being a thief unless he's generous. Or in other words, he's saying you have to be generous or you're a thief. Why is that true? Because if God is the owner of everything that we have, and if we are trustees of all that we have, then the shots have to be called by the owner. The owner's values have to be honored. That's why Paul is saying, if you're a thief, quit what? Instead, use your hands for hard work. Do what you do well. Have dignity with what you do, but then give what? Generously to those in need. Now, by the way, radical generosity is more than just a willingness to shell out money. Radical generosity is an attitude of life. It is an attitude toward your possessions. It's an attitude toward yourself. It's a willingness not to be so possessive of your possessions. It's a willingness to lend what you've got. To not be so protective of your space, you understand. Do you know what it is? It's a willingness to let people in. It's being sensitive, unusually sensitive to the needs and remember as you meet people to see the needs and respond to them. 
You know, I, I was reminded of a woman in whose home there was a Bible study that was meeting, and this woman approached the Bible study leader with tears in her eyes and said, you can't have this Bible study here anymore. She's like, well, why? She said, well, my furniture's getting all nicked up, and, you know, there's coffee cake crumbs being ground into my rug, and the Bible study leader looked at her and said, my dear friend, someday the earth is going to burn up. And the sun, and the sun's going to go out, the earth's going to burn up, and your rugs are going to be burned up. (laughs) She looked at her and she said, the people in this room and the word of God are all that are going to last forever. So she said to her, do you want to put your money into something that's going to burn up, or do you want to put your money into something that's going to last forever? Now, she was really rude, (laughs) but she was right. And I'll just say, I don't think she should have said that necessarily in that context in that way. But what's the rationale behind that? I'm going to recap, and I'm going to go through this very quickly. What did we talk about in the second week of this series? We said there are different ways that people historically and culturally look at money. For example, capitalism says it's your money, and you can do with your money what you want. And, of course, I'm kind of oversimplifying, but communism and socialism says, well, it's the people's money, and you need to do what the community needs. But Christianity says it's God. It's God's money. And you must do as God directs. And, guys, those are three very different systems. And you understand there are problems with the first two systems because, now, I'm a, I am a proud American, but i got to tell you, there are problems with capitalism. For example, capitalism has always had the problem of social injustice. Because how do you really lay a powerful enough motivation on people that they're willing to be generous? Also, communism has a motivation problem because by taking away the ownership from the people... Communism lacks a motivation for production because because they force you to do it. And I think that we've learned through COVID, nobody likes to be forced to do anything. Is Is that right? There's a human problem that we have with being forced. That what's the problem with forcing? Well, forcing somebody lacks the human dignity that comes with freedom. And so God speaks to this thing of biblical stewardship. That human beings, human beings have a need to have part of the world that they take care of as their own. But human beings must have the ability to choose to decide what to do with that. And then they say, well, I want to do what God says. And that is that the wealth that you have is God's wealth, but you're just a trustee of that wealth, which means enjoy it. You're a trustee, so enjoy the wealth, but don't forget, the owner says, you also need to give generously. That's how the owner directs it to be used, and this is why, friends, do you see? (laughs) This is why the Apostle Paul says in this scripture, if you look at it, he says, if you're a thief, quit stealing. And you're no longer a thief when you become generous. And that's what this passage, by the way, in James was telling us that was just read to you a few minutes ago by the worship band. It's your attitude toward wealth and possessions. In fact, here's what James is saying. If I could say it this way. 
James is saying your attitude toward your wealth and your money reflects the essence of what faith is. It's at the very heart of being a Christian. Now, that's why materialism is so dangerous to Christianity. And what James is saying, and we're going to get to it here in a minute, James is saying that real faith, not nominal faith, not just a claim or a profession, not an emotional experience of Christianity, but real faith will ultimately have three characteristics. And we're going to go over what those characteristics are. We're going to look at them quickly. I'm going to spend the majority of time on the first one. Don't freak out. I'm going to spend most of my time on the first one, and then we're going to hit two and three as quickly as we can. But, but how do you know you have real faith? This is what James is dealing with, that you're rich in faith. The first way is this, if you just write this down, that you will begin to operate in what I would call generous mercy. Write that down. Generous mercy. Generous mercy. Now why? Because if you just look at these verses, James 2, right at verse 12, it says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Now, that's interesting, because what he's saying here is speak and act as if you're going to be scrutinized by the law. Now, a lot of New Testament Christians like to say the law doesn't matter. Oh, I don't care about the law. I have Jesus. No, no, no. The Scripture's saying we should speak and act as if the law scrutinizes our behavior. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. I know that you can't fulfill it perfectly. Jesus says, I have fulfilled it perfectly, but that doesn't give you the right to ignore what God says is true. And now look at what he says in verse 13. He says, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been what? Come on, who has not been merciful. That's a word that I want you to remember, merciful. Because, what does he say next? Mercy triumphs over judgment. What a word, mercy. And then he goes on, he says in verse 14, so what good is it, my brothers, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Now, friends, again, how do you know the difference between saving faith and just emotional lip service? That's a pretty good question for religious people. Well, I'm going to tell you, you can see it right here. This is what James is getting to, the essence of what faith is. And notice what he says. Let's go back to this. He says, because judgment without, what's the word? Mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been what? Merciful, because what? Triumphs over judgment. What this is saying is that on judgment day, the way that you can tell people that they have real faith is by their mercy. For it says there will be a judgment without mercy for those who have shown no mercy. So you just look at this word mercy, it's all over here, and it's an interesting word. I mean, mercy has multiple meanings. In fact, if you look at the scripture, you could say it has a broad meaning, or you can read it sometimes and know it has a very specific meaning. For example, in the broad sense, when you think of mercy... You probably think of it like we all do, and that is you're looking at people and you're feeling compassion for them. You're loving them. You're not judging them. You're forgiving them, and that's, that is true. That's mercy. But 
Usually, there is a very specific meaning in the Bible, and what mercy usually means, as you go through it, you'll start to see this, it usually means you're willing to help somebody physically with their physical needs. It means you're willing to help somebody economically with their practical needs. You say, well, where do you see that? Well, let me give you some examples. Maybe some of you remember the story in the Bible, the story of a king, and he had a servant who owes 10,000 talents, and the king forgives him of that debt and wipes out the economic debt. But at the end, he's very angry toward the servant. And I can't go into the parable today, but notice what he says to the servant. It's here on the screen. It says, you wicked servant. He said, I have canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. And notice what he says, verse 33. Shouldn't you have had what? Mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? The mercy of economic relief? Or let me just give you another example. I'll give you three. I'll give you another example. You see this all through the scripture. It says, as Jesus was approaching Jericho, there was a blind man who was sitting by the roadside. He was begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. So the blind man called out, Jesus, son of David, let's say it together. Have mercy on me. What was he doing? Was this man just asking for the forgiveness of sins, do you think? No. He was using the word mercy to say, Jesus, I have a physical problem. I'm blind. Could you do something about my blindness, my physical suffering? Let me give you just one more. Do you remember that the most important place in that great parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, where there was a Samaritan finds the man lying on the road? How many of you remember? I encourage you to look this up if you don't know this parable, if you're new to the Bible. It's in the 10th chapter of Luke, it's something. But if you remember, the most important part of that parable was this. He went to him and he bandaged up his wounds. He poured oil and wine on him. He took him to an inn, he took care of him. He took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. He actually gives him a financial subsidy. He says, I'm gonna reimburse you for any extra expense. What is he doing? He's tending to the wounds. He stays up all night. What's he doing? He's doing social work. He's doing practical work. And at the very end, Jesus says, he is the one who had mercy. Isn't that interesting? That's the one who had mercy on him. The one who gave economic and financial relief. So, guys, you need to understand, in this context of James, this is what James, again, is all about. If you have your notes... For example, well, I'll just show you on the screen. If you look at the context of what we're going in here, James chapter 1, literally, the end of James 1 says, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means, means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Then in chapter 2, you read verses 5 and 8, and this is where we picked up. It said, honor the poor man. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? So love the poor man. Love your neighbor as yourself. They're your neighbor. Again, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And he looks at believers. He looks at the church and he says, guys, what good is it if you claim to have faith, but you have no deeds? Can such a faith save you? And then he defines the kind of action he's looking for. And 
and he comes down to your possessions. Look what he says. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace and keep warm and be well fed, but you do nothing about their physical needs, what good is your faith? In the same way, faith by itself is not accomplished. If it is not accomplished by action, what kind of faith is it? It's a dead faith. Now, guys, let me be very clear. This is, not, this is not describing a theology of works. James is simply saying that on judgment day, your mercy will show, your generosity will show whether you ever had real faith or not. Were you really a Christian or were you just a religious person? That's what he's dealing with. And by the way, that's why I wanted to name this series Signs. What are the signs that the gospel actually has a grip on your money when you talk about faith? Now, let's take a minute and let's, let's talk about faith. I just want to share some uh, thoughts with you because Paul says it this way. It's this great scripture. Many of you know it. He says that we live by faith and not by sight. But I want for you to notice what it doesn't say. He's not saying that we live by faith and not by reason. He's not saying that we live by faith and not by thinking. Why? Why do I distinguish that? Because faith and reason and faith and thinking are not opposed to each other. We all need to understand that about faith. In fact, write that down. That's, that's critically important that we get that. Faith and thinking are not opposed to each other. Faith and reason are not opposed to each other. But what Paul is saying, and we all need to understand, if you'd write this down, is that faith and sight are opposed to each other. Faith and sight are opposed to each other. Now, let me just say it to you this way. Here's why that's true. Because the essence of faith is being controlled by the truth. Knowing what the truth is and letting that guide you as opposed to what you see. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. Let's imagine that you have to have surgery, okay? Let's just think about that for a minute. Anybody here ever have surgery? Give me a show of hands if you've ever had a surgery. I can commiserate. I've had two spinal fusion surgeries. My first surgery, they had to cut me open from the front, go find the bone fragments that were floating around in my spinal canal. They took those out. They sewed up my stomach muscles, flipped me over like a pancake, and then did a spinal fusion surgery on the back. It was scary. And then I had a second one. If it's not enough, I had two spinal fusion surgeries. And, and having a surgery is a scary thing. Now, let's imagine you've got to have surgery. It's a big surgery, and you want to know, who is a good surgeon? So suppose somebody comes to you and says, I know a woman who's a marvelous surgeon who does this kind of surgery. And so you begin to investigate this surgeon. You begin to talk to other people that, you know, she's worked on. And let's just say, for the sake of the illustration, you're actually able to talk to other surgeons and find out what they think about her. You're even able to find medical records, and you find out, what does everybody say about this surgeon? This surgeon is the best. She's the best. She's never lost a patient. She's never had an unsuccessful surgery, and the evidence is just overwhelming. And so what do you see? You go, oh, fantastic. I have found the best in the country, and you sign up. And so I'll tell you what. On the day of the surgery, you get there, and what do you do? You chicken out. Why? Well, because you start to get there, and you go in the hospital, and you smell the antiseptic, 
and you see a few of the surgical tools lying around, and then you look over to your left, and you see some bloody little gloves lying around, you know. And you panic. You start to think, I can't do it. Well, I'm going to ask you, what's just happened right there? I'm going to tell you what's happened. You have now lost your faith in her. Why? Is it because you got really new information? No. Why do you think you have lost your faith in her? I'm going to tell you why. It's because now you're going by sight. You're not going by faith anymore. You're being controlled now by what you see. You're being controlled now by appearances in spite of what you know to be true. And what's happening is you don't even know it, but you're actually being controlled by your feelings. You know what's true. You know where the evidence leads. So here's my question for you. Are you going to walk by faith or are you going to walk by sight? Do you get my point? That's what faith is all about. Now, what you need to do is, you need to say to yourself, look, I need this surgery. This is the best person. But ultimately, you've got to decide, am I going to let sight guide me or faith guide me? Let me give you another illustration, maybe one you can relate to. Single women can identify with this. Now, everybody can identify with this, but I think the single ladies will appreciate this. Let's say some great-looking guy asks you out. I mean, he is good-looking. He has a full head of hair, not like this. I mean, he is tall, not like this. And you're pretty excited because it's wonderful. And, and man, he is gorgeous. I mean, he just makes your heart go flutter. And, and one of your friends say, now listen, I'm just going to tell you something. He's a pretty nice guy, but, but be careful. If you tell him anything, if you even give him an intimate secret, he is a blabbermouth. It'll be all over. It'll be all over social media. You know, he always likes to talk about personal things. She gets warned. You're going to feel really intimate with him, but he likes to tell people, so be careful. You're going to have a good time, but just watch out. Now, one friend tells you this, and so you listen. But then you notice another friend tells you this. And then you notice another friend tells you the same thing. And so you begin to say, well, you know what? I better be careful. I better watch out. But then the night of the date comes, and you go out with this good-looking hunk of burning love, and you look across the candlelight, and oh, he is so fine. And this place, is, this place is so nice, and the food is so good. And he looks at you, and he says, how you doing? You know. And he says, tell me a little bit about yourself. What are you going to do? Are you going to walk by faith, or are you going to walk by sight? Because you're looking at him, and as you're looking at him, all the warnings in your heart begin to fade. Now, guys, what's happening? You're starting to lose your faith in what you know to be true, and you're walking by sight. Do you see what Paul's saying? Come on. See, when you lose your faith, it doesn't mean... Non-Christians, non-believing people don't understand this. They, They have it backwards, actually. When you lose your faith, it doesn't mean that you've started to think. It actually means you've stopped thinking. You lose your faith when you stop thinking. When Jesus talked about faith, he's always saying faith is not the opposite of reason. Faith is not the opposite of thinking. No, doubt is the opposite of thinking. 
You say, well, show me. What are you talking about? Well, let me show you something really good. You guys ready for this? Everybody ready? All right, watch this. Look at Matthew chapter 6. Take a look. Here it comes. He says, I tell you, don't worry about your clothes. Don't worry about your food and what you drink. And he says, I'll tell you why you don't have to worry about that. He says, because look at the who. Look at the what. He says, look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns. Your heavenly father feeds them. Aren't you more valuable than they are? And then he says, hey, I'll tell you what. Use your reason. Use your brain. Use your intellect. Don't just look at the birds. How about this? Look at the lilies. Look at the flowers. Look at how they grow. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers who are here today and thrown out in the fire tomorrow, he'll certainly care for you. And then he says, why do you have so little what? Faith. See what he's saying. He's saying if you want to have faith, look around. Get observant. What has God done? What does God do? Consider the lilies. Consider the birds. Argue with yourself. Think, think, think. Now, do you know what's interesting? Cults have a very different view of faith. Because cults will tell you, and there are Christian cults, but here's how you know a cult. A cult will tell you, just believe, don't think. Have faith, don't ask questions. Don't ponder, we'll never ask you to do that here. We want you to ask the questions. We want you to look at the evidence. Because we know what you're going to find if you're honest. Don't stop wondering about things. See, see how Jesus is? If you want to have faith, Jesus says you have to think. Doubt's the absence of thinking. Now, let me give you another example. Do you guys remember that story? If, if, if you haven't heard it, it's an amazing story. It's in the Gospels. I don't have it in your notes. But Jesus, they're, they're crossing the lake, and there's this big storm that comes upon them. And Jesus is asleep in the storm. And the disciples are seeing the storm. They're seeing the waves. And so because they're seeing the waves, what do they say? They say, Master, Master, we're going to what? We're going to perish. And so Jesus Christ wakes up, and what's the first question he asks? He says, where's your faith? Why? Why don't you have faith? I'll tell you why. It's because you're using your sight. Jesus is asleep in the storm, the disciples are seeing the storm. They're seeing the waves. We're going to drown. He says, where's your faith? God, have more faith. Guys, would you get out your faith? Come on. He's looking at the disciples. He says, guys, you saw me raise people from the dead. You don't think I can handle a wave? You don't think I can handle a storm? He says, you saw me promise to you that I'm going to take you to this place and to this place and to this place. You've heard all these things. You've seen all these things. You know what I can do. You know who I was. But now you see some waves? Come on. Get out your faith. Guys, I need to talk to you about faith. Because, listen, the scripture doesn't act like faith is this mysterious thing. You know, Christians get weird about faith. Like faith is this mysterious thing that you gotta, it's gotta be whooped up. It's gotta be, woo, conjured up. Woo, I've got faith. You know, and, and you get these weird stuff going on in Christian theology. That's not what faith is. Faith is not an emotion that you gotta, woo, you know, get whooped up. You just get out your faith by looking at who God is. Get it out. Look at the birds. 
Look at the lilies that are here today and thrown out tomorrow. Now, Jesus is specific about this. If I've not driven this point home enough to you, Jesus is very specific about this when he talks about your money. This whole thing is about your money. It's why he says, look right here, I tell you, he says, do not worry about your what? Everyday life. Don't worry about it. Look at what I do. Get out your faith. You know, there's a couple of members here that I love so much. Uh, Tim and Debbie Bennett. You'll see their picture coming up here. Uh, Aren't they good-looking people? They're amazing people. Yeah, yeah, they deserve a hand. They, uh, uh, Deb shared a couple weeks ago with me this testimony. I was going to read it to you last week, and I didn't have a chance, so I thought I'd read it to you today. This is just a recent story. Now, Tim wrote this, but, but Deb, Deb and Tim will verify this story. He wrote, the journey that we've been on the past couple years has been nothing short of amazing. God has shown he's faithful to his promises, even though we're so undeserving. We started our financial journey in 2018 when Debbie lost her job. Her company moved out of state. I took over being in charge of the finances because I wanted to take the burden off of her. We started out doing well as I made sure the bills were paid over anything. I gave back to God, but admittedly, it was haphazard and inconsistent. As the months passed, I wanted so badly to make this work, I found myself further behind financially as I started to use credit cards. It wasn't that our regular bills were a big issue, but it was things like taking trips, eating out, and needing to use a credit card. And he says, yes, our giving suffered. When my wife would ask, I couldn't bear to tell her the situation or about the stress I was under. It was horrible. Finally, in March of last year, of 2020, my wife asked about our finances and said that everything in her heart was telling her that we were struggling. I painstakingly revealed our debt to her. I admitted that I did not want to have to change the lifestyle we lived when we had two incomes because she deserved that. That it was sincerely in my heart, and I have to be honest, and I said, I know it's ridiculous thinking. So he says, I admitted to her what an idiot I was. By the way, that is a good thing for a husband to do. (laughs) I admitted what an idiot I was for not sharing what was happening in the previous months. She readily agreed, I am an idiot. (laughs) I took one minute of a tongue lashing from her, and then by the grace of God, she said, okay, let's pull this together. We sat down and jotted out a plan that looked like it would take years to pay off the debt that we've incurred. We prayed and asked God to forgive the irresponsibility and for not giving it to him first. We laid everything before him and relinquished his power over our finances, recognizing that it was all his to begin with. We signed up for the Dave Ramsey class, Financial Peace University, which, by the way, starts tonight at 6 p.m., student ministry building. You You can all go. Look what he says. He says, I cannot even find the true words to explain what happened next. The floodgates opened wide. God and his mercy opened up opportunities that I saw as God's leading me, which meant the sum of working sometimes 60 to 65 hours a week. I paid attention to all that God was showing me. We started by giving God 5% right off the top of our income. And money and opportunities just started rolling in. Remember last week we said, how do you begin to learn to tithe? The tithe is 10%. You give that to the church. You give that to God for the sake of the gospel. 
and people. And remember I said you pick a percentage in line with obedience. This is what they did there. They started at 5%, but then they kept going. Said God provided a part-time job offer that I could do after my full-time job. And I got offered a lot of overtime. We allowed ourselves no luxuries at all. He says, we begin to pay off our debt. We were paying off bills faster than you can imagine. As we did, we pushed our giving higher and higher until we reached 10% of tithing. And then at the same time, in one year, we paid off $44,000 in debt. Isn't that amazing? We followed God's lead and never questioned, and and we've been made forever changed. We are now debt-free And we're living, this is within a two-year span. We're now debt-free and living fully within the boundaries of the lifestyle God has given to us and all that is due to him first. The blessings have been more than my mind can fathom. Within six months after paying off all of our debt, Deb felt a prompting from God that we should sell our house and move to Mariposa so that we could be near her parents and help them out. Apparently, he was doing a work on her heart. So we prayed for God to open and shut doors, and he did. We're now happily living in Mariposa. We have no regrets because we did it God's way. They still come to North Point even though they live in Mariposa. He said they could even pay for gas. Here's what he says. Don't ever underestimate God's working in your life when you give him all that you are. He took what we thought was a long period of time to accomplish what we needed to accomplish and showed us that he has a different plan He works differently for each one of us according to what he has planned for his kingdom. But, however, he does it. It will be what he intends it to be and his promises will be kept. He always calls us to obedience. Tim and Debbie Bennett. Isn't that amazing? Now, guys, faith If you consistently worry, if you're consistently worried about your money and you're not giving it to God, then you're not being controlled by what the Bible says about God. He's your father. He will take care of you. In fact, let me put it this way about faith. Guys, next two points you gotta get. They're all about faith. Write this down. Remember, faith and sight are opposed to each other, so write this down. Enslavement to visible things in your life calls into question real faith in the one who is invisible. (laughs) Enslavement to visible things calls into question real faith in invisible things. So, are you gonna walk by faith or are you gonna walk by sight? He owns everything. He owns the grass of the field. He takes care of the birds of the air. You see what James is saying here? Do you see what Jesus is saying in Matthew? Again, enslavement to visible things calls into question real faith in the God who is invisible. In other words, if you know there's a God taking care of you, it changes you, and you're willing to release it because you know God. So let me just, what is faith? Well, write this down. What is the essence of faith? The essence of faith is being controlled by who God is. And saying, God, I'm going to let that guide my action. This is why you can give fearlessly. Because you're controlled by who God is. You're not looking at the waves, you're looking at Jesus. And it shows up in your attitude towards your money. Friends, can I just tell you how desperately I want this for you? It's not because, it's 
not because God is into raising money, but God is into raising kids. And God knows for you to be the person you need to be, he says you cannot serve both God and money at the same time. Those two things are incongruent. And I shared this with you in my first week as your pastor. You know, my heart is burdened that you would take bold steps of faith. I'm telling you, over the next year, we're going to be challenging you as a church to take some bold steps of faith. Now, do you know why I'm willing to take bold steps of faith? I'm willing to do it because I think you're a group of people that want to take bold steps of faith. Am I right about that? Amen. I think that you're people that want to see the city change. I think you're people that want to see God do something significant that's not normal, but supernatural. But God doesn't do that without faith because the Bible says without faith it's impossible to please him. And so I shared with you in our first week, you know, we have this many active families in our church, 3,342 active families. You'll remember this if you were here. But do you know those that actually give at North Point? Just give. I'm not even talking about a tithe. I'm just saying giving makes up about 881 of those families. 26%. That's why, by the way, I can do a series on this so boldly knowing it's needed because I can just look at the numbers. And I'm not trying to do it to be condemning or to have an agenda. I'm not looking, you know, in the closets to look at who's who and all that. I'm just looking at the numbers. So you look at the non-giving families that attend and regularly consume the word of God but don't invest in the proclamation of the word of God. That's 2,461, 74%. You remember I told you in that first week what our current budget is? That by the way, we're behind on. That makes me sad. Our current budget right now is $4,737,000. That's our annual budget. But do you realize if just the 76% of people 74%, excuse me, that didn't give, if they started giving, just them alone, the non-givers, if they started giving a tithe, we would more than double our budget. <laughs> Think of the ministry that could be done. You know, we will be challenging you to a campaign where we're going to do some, some gospel ventures to create an environment on our campus where gospel conversations are happening regularly. Yes, there will be a coffee house. Yes, it's going to change our patio and baptismal area and all that because it's all designed around evangelism and relationships. Amen. I'm going to say to you, but I'm going to say to you, if everybody tithed that regularly comes, do you know we'd never have to do a campaign like that? <laughs> we could just build out of the operating budget. Isn't that interesting? Now, if you combined the non-givers giving that would over then double our budget and you put them with the folks that faithfully do give, the total budget would be almost $15 million. Do you know, with that kind of money, we could feed Fresno every quarter. We could do massive Convoy of Hope outreaches and proclaim the gospel every quarter. Imagine the social work that could be done. Imagine the proclamation of the gospel. Imagine the marketing blitzes to the city of Fresno because we could afford to do it, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. How do you know your faith is the real deal? Well, one is generous mercy. Your and mercy means you're economically helping people. You're giving. Write this second thing down. Again, I said I was going to take the longest on that point, so let me just zip through these. Number two, you're radically gracious. Notice where it says, you're radically gracious. It says, listen, my dear brothers, has God not chosen those of you who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom he promised? To those who love him? He says, but you've insulted the poor. It's not the, 
Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Now, by the way, this is a fascinating verse because on the one hand, he's pointing out something true about history. I said this to you last week. Christianity is distinct among all religions is that Christianity is the one religion that moves around the globe. It doesn't stay dominant in one place. It moves. Why is that true? It's a sociological historical fact. Why? Because Christianity always moves to areas that are poor, and that's where it begins to dominate. It moves to areas that are poor. It declines in areas of wealth. It's fascinating. Why? Well, one of the things, you look at the Bible and you see that, you know, the radically great, tremendous, dynamic Christian movements often start with the poor. It's true. The earliest Christians were poor. The great revivals that have happened throughout our history have happened, by and large, among the poor. Now, I I think I know the reason why this is true. It's because the economically poor understand what it means to be dependent. Now, we all know intellectually that before God, all human beings are supposed to be dependent. We know that, but a poor person is closer to it in real time. That's the truth. And again, I think this is why Jesus said, and I'm just going to point it out. He says, I'll say it again. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a what? a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I think it's because Jesus knows something about human nature. That when a person, by the way, when a person has enough money, that they have all this wealth, more money than they know what to do with, what do we call that person? Independently wealthy. They're independent. They have no need to depend on anyone. Be careful where independence takes you. Paul said it this way. Let's keep going here. It's not in your notes, but I gotta share this with you. We gotta preach here. He says, for men who set their hearts on being wealthy expose themselves to what? Temptation. For loving money leads to all kinds of evil and some men in the struggle to be rich have lost their what? There it is. They've lost their faith and caused themselves to untold agonies of the mind. It's easy to forget God. So what does Paul say? What am I saying? What am I trying to get? I'm begging you to read God's word and understand. Notice how he goes on. He then speaks to the person of God. Let's keep going here together. He says, but you man of God, keep clear of such things. Set your heart, read it with me, but on. Fight the worthwhile battle of the what? Keep your grip on the life eternal to which you have been called. Wow. I charge you in the sight of God who gives us life. Tell those who are rich in this present world not to be contemptuous of others and not to rest the weight of their confidence on the transitory power of wealth, but on the living God who generously gives us everything for our enjoyment. Tell them, come on everybody, tell them to do good to be rich in kindly actions, to be ready to give to others and to sympathize with those in distress. What does that mean? You're radically gracious. You're a gracious person. You're sympathetic to people's needs. I gotta share with you one more story. I know I'm going long. You gotta put up with me, but I told you in week one about this guy named Dan. Man, I wanna talk about radically gracious and how he has real faith coming out in graciousness toward the needs of others. Just listen to his story. I told you about him, but listen from his mouth. I am Dan. I am 
the father of two daughters that actually attend North Point and volunteer in the daycare. I have a beautiful wife, been married for 22 years, and life is good. A couple years ago, I, I started uh, North Point about December 2018. The one thing I noticed pretty quick was that at North Point, we're a church of doers. We see things that are needed and we try and meet those needs. So I became all in. I did the, the core classes immediately. My family got baptized within being a couple months here. And then I was looking for things to help the body of Christ. I started passing out Bibles in downtown Fresno, passing out meals in downtown Fresno. And at the same time, I started a job working with adults with developmental disabilities and then found out that there was a ministry at North Point called Special Stars, and they also were working with kids with developmental disabilities and just disabilities in general. And the goal was to help the parents of those individuals have access to church. And so I started volunteering with that. And my friend Raymond, I would tell him all the different things I was trying to do and what what was working. And after about the third or fourth time that I had been talking to him about different things, he says, Dan, I see you looking for something. You're looking for things and you're, you're passing out the Bibles, which is great, but you light up when you talk about ministry, working with individuals with disabilities. And that's you, that's, that's your ministry. God established that was my identity. My identity was someone that sees individuals with disabilities and wants to make them feel welcome and loved and let them know they belong. And so that's kind of the backstory. Now, recently I heard a radio say a Christian radio station interviewed a pastor that had gone on a hike and enjoyed it because he loved nature. But when he came back to his church, there was one of the members that was in a wheelchair he felt uncomfortable letting that person know his the story of the hike because that person couldn't go and that broke his heart. So he took a moment of action. He found out how could we change that and he found a wheelchair made in France that was gonna bridge, be the bridge for that individual to, instead of being stuck in her apartment, she got to go on a hike. And that just filled me with joy. And I thought, how can we do that? Well, come to find out the wheelchair's expensive. So that was a little bit challenging. It was so cool what they did. So I just looked up in my free time how to, how to find one of these wheelchairs. How do you buy one? How do you do any of that? Not having the money. And it turns out it was a lot more money than I had, but it didn't matter because I was going to God. God could solve anything. About a month into this, I found out an attorney called me and said an investment that I thought I had lost 20 years ago was coming back. Oh, and by the way, it was gonna be more than enough to buy one of these wheelchairs. So without hesitation, I almost made the purchase. Without talking to my wife, I talked to my wife. Long story short, that wheelchair's hopefully arriving in my front porch today. And I am so, so excited to bring that ministry to North Point because we are going to be the bridge for individuals with disabilities 
to our church. We're going to, this is a way to invite people into our church life. And I think that's what we're called to do. We're called to make disciples of all nations. Well, this is the nation I choose. Keep your ears open for more information about that ministry. Isn't that awesome, though? Isn't that awesome? So what's faith look like? Number one, generous mercy. You're having mercy on people. Number two, you're radically gracious. You're in touch with their needs, and you're given grace in a real way. But then here's the third thing. Write this down. It's tremendously practical. It's practical. And that's what Dan is picking up on, that they're, they're just a real way to meet needs that make a difference when you give. That's why I encourage you, right at the end here, verses 15 and 16, look what it says. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing, if you only talk and you do nothing, he says what? Faith by itself, if it's not accompanied, by practical action, what kind of faith is it? It's just a dead faith. Here's the last thing I'm going to tell you is this, guys. Some of you are sitting here right now, and, well, you're saying, well, I hear what I'm supposed to be feeling, shame. You're saying, I know that I, I should be feeling generous because of God's grace. You say, I know I should be feeling confident that I trust the one who owns everything, and you say, I know I should be feeling like that, but if you're honest, you're looking at me right now and you're saying, I don't. You're sitting here, and you can be honest about it. Be honest about it. You'd say, I don't feel like that. I have a lot of inner fear. I have a lot of inner turmoil, and I don't feel that generous. It's not easy for me to let people into my space. You say that James is saying I need to do that and I don't feel it and I just want to say to you right now I understand and I get that you don't feel it but I want to say this very clearly it's okay that you don't feel it because real Christian love was never about sentiment anyway it's not about your sentiment it's not about your feeling Real Christian faith is action. You don't feel your way into an action. You act your way into a feeling. That's how you live life purposefully and intentionally. Can I just ask you a question? When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and when he went to the cross, do you think he felt the warm fuzzies? Do you think that he's hanging on the cross going, oh, I just feel so good about this? No. The greatest act of generosity, the greatest act of love in all of human history, and it wasn't a feeling that got him there. I said um, last week, it was a fill-in that I, didn't, I skipped right over. I didn't give you a chance to write it down. But I said our motives are combined by two things. It's not just beauty. It's not just delight in the Lord. It's also duty. <laughs> it's beauty and duty. 
on the one hand, I love the Lord and I want to love the Lord and I need to love the Lord and I'm going to stir up that fire. But on the other hand, it's not always there. So then I rely on duty because I know that I want to be obedient to God no matter how I feel. Again, do you think Jesus felt the warm fuzzies as he died for you? No. But he did so that you could know him. And all it takes to know Jesus Christ is to be willing to say, I know I don't have it all together. You just got to throw down your ego and say, I know I don't have it all together. That's a hard thing to do. But you just say, Jesus, I need you. I need to entrust myself to you and what you did on the cross. Help me. And he'll, he'll take that faith and do something in your life as you humble yourself before him. You all have these little communion cups on your chairs. Would you grab those? I want us to take a minute as we've spent the last four weeks talking about what Jesus defines as an idol or a God in the world. That is our money. And I want us to put down our idols and I want us to say, God, you are my God. My possessions are not my God. My money is not my God. You are my God. But it's going to be more than emotion. It's going to be real. And as you prepare that little annoying thing that you've got, by holding the lid off, we're going to remember the Lord together as an act of worship. Because, see, Jesus says on the night he was betrayed, he went to the cross. Before the cross, he took supper. And on the night he was betrayed, he passed out bread And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. It was a prophecy of what was about to come. And he said, as often as you get together, do this in remembrance of me, that my body was broken so that you can have, I was broken so that you could be made whole if you would trust me to do it. Father, thank you for each person here. And I pray, oh God, that you would bless them and heal them. I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that you'd make yourself known to them by faith. Thank you for your broken body on the cross as a payment for our sin. In Jesus' name, let's eat together. And it says, in the same way, he took a cup that was full of wine. And he said, you know, as often as you get together and drink together, I want you to remember me that this was my blood spilled for you. It's the blood that washes away our sin. We are clothed in Christ. We are not perfect. He is perfect. We are made right with God because of his shed blood. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you for your shed blood on the cross. Jesus, we praise you. We praise you and we thank you. We love you, Lord. Just pray this prayer with me. Jesus, I love you. I praise you. Thank you for your shed blood that washes away my sin. I trust you. Give you my life. In Jesus' name. Let's drink together. Now, Father, bless each one. Be their encouragement, their hope and strength. I pray for joy among households and lives, men and women. I pray they'd laugh. I pray they'd be good stewards and enjoy what you've given them. But Lord, above all, let us be generous make a difference in the world. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Everyone said...